Hello and welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. I'm Daniel Connolly here with Megan Gower. And as we talk today, the start of the 2020-2021 UConn women's basketball season is officially underway. So yesterday, Wednesday, October 14th, the team started its first official practice. It has now 41 days to complete 30 practices before the start of the season, which is looking like November 28th at Mohegan Sun. Megan, do you have any big takeaways from yesterday's availability with the team? Well, I think number one, it's just exciting that like they're practicing their, the season is like actually starting. So I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. Um, but I think the biggest thing I took away from it is that I feel like Juan Gino had generally very positive things to say about the team and also just how much he talked about how competitive and aggressive they are. Um, I feel like that's going to be really exciting to kind of watch as it translates to the court. It's going to be probably a little bit scrappier of a UConn team than we've seen in a while, and I'm excited to watch that. Yeah, I definitely agree with the point on Gino being in a pretty good mood because I think it's fair to say like last season he was like in a bad mood the entire way through like it never seemed like we would catch him on a good day where he'd be in a chatty mood or just be willing to go on forever like he can but yesterday he definitely was in a pretty good mood he's been in a bubbly bubblier mood the last few times we've talked with him and yeah he seems happy with how the team's progress is going along and he made the comment that you know, like CD said, we may not win as many games as we did last year, but we're going to enjoy coaching this group. That's for sure. Because there's a, there's a certain vibe that the young guys have brought that's distinctly different. Distinctly. I'd be really surprised. It's early, but if this team was worse or even equivalent to last year's team. Yeah, and also just looking at the schedule, too. Well, I mean, we haven't seen a schedule, but we're going to get into it later. Like, there's just not a lot of teams on that schedule that you're going to expect them to lose to to begin with. So I would kind of expect, yeah, you wouldn't really expect them to lose extra games. They're not going to lose Big East games, probably. Like, they'll probably win just as many games, and they might be better. I don't know. It's definitely going to be different. I feel like it's still too early to say if they'll be better. But I mean, technically, they could win fewer games just by playing less games but I that that was not the tone of the comment that Gino made but yeah they don't have one clear-cut point guard it's probably going to be a mixture of a handful of players but Gino seemed to point out that there's a lot of players on this team that can pass the ball he said Liv's a much better passer this year Avina passes the ball well Kristen can get the ball around Anna we've seen what she can do with the ball in her hands and then Everyone's talked about not just how good Paige is at passing, but pretty much every single time any player mentions, oh yeah, Paige is a really good passer, they say the exact same thing about Nika. And I think we probably underrated how good Nika might be for this team. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially with like the thought of like how many times has Gino has something positive to say about freshmen in general on day one of practice. So I feel <laughs> like that bodes really well for both of them and how good they might be off the bat for this team. If we go back to our freshman rankings, we've had Paige at number one pretty much since the beginning. And I think Ali has kind of been solidly in that number two spot. I think initially I might have had Nika number four and you might have even had her number five, right? Yeah, I think so. I feel pretty confident in in moving Nika up to number three in my freshman rankings, dropping Mir down to number four with Piath at five and Autumn six, because I just 
can't remember a time that so many people talked about a freshman this consistently without anyone asking about her. I don't think there's been a whole lot of questions on Nika, but her name keeps coming up. Yeah, that's a very fair point. I don't know that I've quite moved her up to third. I think I would still keep uh, Mira McLean at third, but I think she could move into that fourth spot for me. I still just think there's so much depth at that guard position. I mean, you've got Avina, Kristen, Paige, uh, Anna and Aubrey can kind of play in a, that spot too. Like, There's just so many people that can hop into that spot, but it'll be interesting to see if she kind of gets more minutes than we thought initially. Right. This is such a killer year to not have any preseason games and not be able to go in and watch the team play because it would be so fun just to see in a low pressure game. Obviously, they're going to get plenty of them during the regular season in the fourth quarter where there's blowouts and they can throw whatever lineups out that they want. But I think in preseason, you can really experiment with different things and see what combinations work and how certain players perform with a first taste of action. And it just sucks that we're not going to be able to get to see that because there's so much intrigue with literally every single player on the roster. I don't think there's one person who you're like, oh yeah, I feel pretty good at being able to predict what we're going to get out of that one because even like the juniors and Liv and Kristen, they both seem like they've taken a pretty big step from last year. And even though they were both solid players last year, they're going to be expected to be some of the best players in the country. And that's a big step up from where they were last year. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I feel like the player we probably have the closest idea on is like Kristen, because she was just so good freshman year that you can kind Mm -hmm. of expect that she's going to be, you know, near above that level, but agreed. Everyone else, it's really hard to tell what to expect. Wish we were going to have an exhibition game so you could kind of see everyone get some significant minutes, but we can thank COVID for that. (laughs) Right. The team sent like practice footage from yesterday and I watched the entire thing like, all right, are we going to see like any sort of like extended period of basketball playing and now it's all like five second clips of like shooting and like driving to the hoop but one thing I did notice in that that was interesting was that Aliyah Edwards was with P.F. Gabriel and Olivia Nelson Adodin working with Chris Daly and Chris Daly's always been kind of known as the bigs coach she worked with Olivia Nelson Adota a lot last year so I found it kind of interesting that they're looking at Aliyah Edwards as a more of a post type instead of a wing like Mir McLean or Aubrey Griffin, which I guess we kind of expected and we had predicted, but I think finally seeing video of her and even just in pictures, oh my God, she's really, really big. Like not just tall because she's six three, but she looks just super imposing and strong. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and it's good to see she's kind of in that position. I think it makes sense in a lot of ways though. I mean, we've heard kind of Kristen last week and Gino kind of elaborated on it this week, comparing her to Fee, um, who played, you know, kind of the five for UConn for a while there, even though she's not really an actual five. Um, And UConn also just doesn't have a lot of depth of that position. They haven't in a while. So it makes sense that they need to have someone other than Liv that can kind of play in that spot. And she seems like the most logical fit on this roster. As the person who started the fee comparisons with Aaliyah Edwards, I'm very happy that Gino agreed with that statement. Uh, here's what he said about it yesterday. Well, she does have that, um, that same competitiveness that Pisa had. You know, she still wants to, wants to impact every possession. You know, she plays so, you know, she plays hard like Fisa does. She has a lot of energy like Fisa did. You know, she has a motor like Fisa had. 
You know, she goes um, at both ends, offensive, defensively, rebounding the ball, you know, getting to the basket. Uh, I, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know, you know, whether or not um, she has Feast's game. But when you think back to when Feast was a freshman, you know, she played behind Stewie and Tuck. So there wasn't, a, and Gabby. So there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of room. I think uh, Aliyah is going to be in a different situation. She's going to have to play a lot. So she's going to be thrown into situations that are going to make her grow up fast, whereas Fisa had an opportunity to kind of slide in there. But um, in terms of their makeup and their motor and how hard they go, and yeah, she has a lot of Fisa qualities. Now, if she can develop her game to match Fisa's game, then we're on to something. I thought it was really interesting how he mentioned that she is going to have more of an opportunity to play than Fee did because obviously Fee was on that ridiculous 2016 roster that <laughs> just ran through everyone. And like you said, there's not really a backup to Olivia Nelson Adota on the roster. There's not really another big that I think you're going to see get a whole lot of minutes. I really don't feel too confident in P.F. Gabriel seeing the court a lot, especially early in the season. The fact that she has a motor similar to Fee and she works the same way as Fee and just goes, goes, goes. I remember Gina was always trying to get Megan Walker to do what Fee does and play like that. And the fact that he doesn't even need to tell Aaliyah to do that. And at this point in the season, he's already saying that she does do those things. I think that's a really, really good sign for what type of player she's going to be. Agreed. I feel like that was one of Megan Walker's like biggest downfalls. She was really good by last year, but she just yeah didn't quite have like that motor that we saw on like Nafisa, which is what kind of brought Nafisa to the next level. Um, so I have a feeling we'll be seeing a lot of Leah Edwards minutes. Speaking of Megan Walker, I just want to go off on a tangent for a bit. So when she left for the WNBA, I, my hot take was that UConn wasn't really going to miss her. And as more time goes on, I really feel better and better about that prediction because with Crystal, you're a point guard. You have to replace a point guard. And she was also UConn's best player all season long. With Megan Walker, you basically have to replace her scoring and her rebounding. And I'm not trying to knock Megan Walker as a player or as a person here, but I think it's just she was a really good player, but I don't think she was anything special or did anything that anyone on this roster can't do. So I think with all the freshmen and then Anna and Aubrey taking a step up, you're going to be able to replicate her scoring. And then with Aaliyah Edwards, again, Aubrey, Mir, Aaliyah, I, I don't think the rebounding will be a huge issue for this team. So I feel like I keep in my stories having to reference back to Crystal Dangerfield and how they're replacing her. And I really haven't talked a whole lot about Megan Walker. I just don't, I don't think it's that big of a void for them to have to fill. Yeah, I mean, this team would be better if Megan Walker was on it, but I kind of agree that it's not, like, as big of a hole as Crystal. I think the biggest hole with her comes just from, like, experience because you're kind of now trying to fill that role with, you know, second-year, first-year players that are going to take a little bit to adjust to the game and to be kind of producing at the level that she was at, by, the, like, the end of last season. But I agree that give it some time, and I think these players can replace the kind of production that we saw from Walker last season. Well, especially, you don't necessarily need to replace her 
by game two or three, but what's it look like in January or March if Gino's already this high on the freshman? I assume they're not just going to nosedive once the season begins. I mean, they could. I imagine there's going to be ups and downs, but I think you're going to see a rotation by February and March that has freshmen earning a lot more minutes than we've seen in recent memory. So I expect the freshman class to progress pretty quickly, and I don't know which player specifically will, but there's going to be a heavy freshman flavor on this team. Yeah, I think like the last time that I can remember that Gina was this positive positive about freshmen was Kristen Williams, kind of a little bit about Kristen Williams in her freshman year. And we all kind of saw how her freshman season turned out. Obviously, she was fantastic for UConn right off the bat and kind of her first year. So if any of these freshmen can kind of elevate themselves to that level that we saw like Kristen in like the Notre Dame game, for example, in her freshman season, I think we'll see a lot of minutes from them. Right. And another thing is we haven't had a team that has this many freshmen. The last few freshman classes have all been two players deep for the most part, pretty much. And then even in 2017, Megan Walker was the only one who got minutes on a relatively consistent basis. And that even wasn't that frequent. So it's a much larger class than we're used to dealing with. And I think a much more talented deep class than we've seen in the past. So I think just the fact that you mentioned the Kristen Williams Notre Dame game, even the Aubrey Griffin Seton Hall gamer, the one she had, I was it against Cincinnati or one of the games in the AAC tournament mm-hmm. where she went off for a double double. That that's the good part about having this many freshmen is if they're talented, they're gonna have games where they go off and rack up a ton of points or rebounds or assists or steals and even though you might not be able to get it on a consistent basis, if you have enough of them, odds are that at least maybe two of them or one of them is going to be on and that's going to help you win a basketball game. Exactly. And I mean, until March, like there's only going to be a handful of nights where they're probably really going to need that to win a basketball team too. Most nights, I mean, between Crystal or sorry, Kristen, Olivia, and then uh, Anna and Aubrey, that's going to be enough as long as someone else is on the floor and like not, detrimental to the team they're gonna win so it'll be a handful of big games that they'll need that for and then yeah I mean by March that's tons of time for the freshmen to get into their own and be ready to perform yeah for sure I think what the schedule looks like this year is going to be really interesting we're going to get to that in a little bit because there's a lot to unpack there but first I think we should talk UConn new conference pretty much a new era I feel like with the five new freshmen and six new freshmen, sorry, and losing six players from last year's team. So they're going to be getting new uniforms this year. This past week, they unveiled a new set of uniforms. They've got three new uniforms, one set of white for Gamble and other home games, their standard Navy away jerseys. And then unfortunately, the XL Center grays are still alive. Me personally, I've never liked the grays. No one's ever seen to challenge me on that take. So I don't really think they're super popular in the fan base, but overall, I think these uniforms are really, really, really nice. Yeah. I'll definitely second you on the gray take. I have someone that like likes gray a lot too. And I just don't like those (laughs) uniforms, (laughs) but yeah, agreed that I really like the new uniforms. They're, I feel like significantly better than the ones that we've had for the last few years. Um, I think my favorite thing about them is just like the amount of red in them. I like you kind of added that. I think I was in college when that happened. So you know, five years, six years ago now, and it hasn't really shown up 
in the uniforms too much, but I kind of like that these ones have a significant amount of that in it. I think they look really awesome. The shorts especially, I think, look really cool. Yeah, I fully agree. I'm not super sure about the away uniforms and the red and that. I I just feel like we haven't gotten enough looks at what they look like in action and the team released them initially as just kind of graphics of all the uniforms and my initial reaction was actually that there was too much red in them it looked like the red striping and lines were a little thick but then once we started to see the players in them and we got different photos and videos of the players on their photo day i it's really really sharp especially on the white i think the white are some of the best uniforms they've ever worn i mean just the red ties the whole thing in perfectly there's this awesome like subtle gray outline on the chest lettering and the numbers that i i don't know what it is about it but it just looks really really good so yeah i i didn't think the old uniforms were terrible but they definitely could have done better as we've seen and importantly they've gotten rid of that really really bad glossy lettering that they had the past few years Yes, agreed. That's gone, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I feel like the other thing I like from all the pictures that they put out was the shoes. Some of the shoes are really cool. Um, There's, like, the white ones. I think they're LeBron's that have, like, the giant huskies on the tongues. I thought those were awesome. I know they're not as noticeable as the uniforms themselves, but (laughs) I want some. (laughs) I actually completely missed that. I didn't see that that there were shoes for each jersey. Yeah, I think it was like LeBron's for the whites, and then they had, I think they were Kyrie's for the, with the blue ones, and then I forget what the other ones were for the gray, but all the shoes look really awesome. I'm not a shoe person, but I agree. All right, we're going to go into a quick ad break and then come back to talk about the schedule. And we're back. So a lot of scheduling news the last few weeks, the biggest of which Notre Dame's postponing this year's matchup with UConn. It seems like the ACC is going to be focusing pretty heavily on conference play. And from at least what the release said, it sounded like Notre Dame canceled on UConn. So they were supposed to start a four-year series this year. That's just getting pushed back one year. UConn's still playing Notre Dame. And I'll be honest, I really don't think this is a huge loss for UConn's non-conference schedule. I think the matchup lost a lot of juice once Muffet retired. And I don't really think Notre Dame's going to be that great this year anyways. So if there's a year for it to get canceled, this one's probably a good one. That was exactly my reaction. I was kind of like, well, oh, well, (laughs) I feel like, yeah, without Muffet, the rivalry just doesn't have the same weight for right now. And also Notre Dame was just, they were bad last year. There's no like nice way to put it. They were bad. And uh, they're going to be, I think, better this year, but they're not going to be good. It's not going to be the kind of like marquee matchup that people expect the UConn Notre Dame to be. So in my opinion, kind of just like, yeah, just push it a year. Hopefully by next season, Notre Dame will be in a better spot. It'll be a better game anyway. Not a big loss for UConn's schedule. Right. You don't go from being a really bad team like Notre Dame was. Like they weren't just a mediocre, not great team. They were legitimately bad last season. And that doesn't get fixed with a coaching change not that it was necessarily Muffet's fault although she didn't recruit great but you just can't fix that that quickly it's going to be a pretty long turnaround for them but because Notre Dame's off the schedule Gino said yesterday that UConn's looking to add another game obviously all very dependent on COVID but he said that there's a lot of teams in the same boat as them with cancellations left and right so if you had to pick Megan who would you want to see UConn add to their schedule 
I'd love to see them add someone from like the Pac-12. So like a Stanford that's going to be good. Even like a UCLA, Arizona, one of those teams. Someone from kind of out west that's going to be a good solid team. There's going to be a lot of solid teams in the Pac-12. So pick someone up from that schedule. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be fun to have them play a team that we don't see a whole lot. We haven't actually seen Stanford in a while, so that would be a good matchup. I think Oregon State, I don't know how good they're going to be this year, but that's obviously a program that's kind of been slowly building the last few years. So I think it would just be interesting to see where they are. But we talked a lot about Arizona last week too. So I think Arizona would be a fun game. I think it's probably in the end going to be an underwhelming addition to the schedule just I don't think there's a whole lot of marquee matchups. I don't think UConn's going to want to travel or the team they face if it's a Pac-12 team is going to want to cross-country travel for it. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's even someone that they originally had scheduled, not me having any inside info there. That's just me completely speculating. So personally, I'm not getting my hopes up, but hopefully it's someone at least intriguing, even if it might not necessarily be a huge matchup. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think hopefully just someone that's going to give them at least a little bit of a challenge, not someone that we expect is going to be a great game. Probably not going to get my hopes up there, but just someone that's going to give them maybe a little bit more challenge than we're going to see kind of most days in the Big East. I'm just going to add a quick note to this part of our conversation as I'm editing the podcast. So right after we finished recording, Doug Bonjour of Her CT reported that ESPN's trying to get a game between Louisville and UConn scheduled. Apparently both teams need a game and that could fill the void left by Notre Dame. All right, back to the regular podcast. Whatever team they do play, if they come to Connecticut to face UConn, it's going to be a Gamble Pavilion because UConn's not going to play any games at the XL Center this year. So that means women's basketball, men's basketball, and hockey. It just doesn't make sense for them to play at XL this year. The whole purpose of playing there is, one, it's closer to most of the fan base. Breaking news, Stores Connecticut is not in an easily accessible location. So it's a lot easier to get to Hartford, especially on a weeknight. And a lot of the games there are during winter break when students aren't on campus. It's also because it has 5,000 more seats than Gamble Pavilion. So you can sell a lot more tickets. And because there's probably not going to be any fans at games, and if there are, it's going to be a pretty limited capacity, it makes sense to just have it at Gamble. You save on rent for having to pay for the games at the Excel Center. I know a lot of times teams will stay over in Hartford the night before, which those are hotel costs. You got to pay for a bus to get up there. It's just much simpler and easier to handle with all the protocols if you have it at Gamble Pavilion. What are your thoughts on not playing in Hartford? Yeah, I think for this year, it totally makes sense. Um, Like you said, kind of all the logistical costs and just kind of with COVID, everything's a logistical nightmare. So it just makes more sense to just stay on campus. I feel like, I mean, even the women's games, right, like you can sell 5,000 more seats in the Excel Center, but they play most of their big games at Gamble anyway, just because the environment is so much better. They play, they usually just kind of played their like eh, ACC games, I feel like, in, <laughs> or AAC games in the Excel Center. So, I mean, there's a couple, I mean, Baylor was there last year. There's usually like one or two like big ones, but they do play a lot of the big ones at Gamble as well. Yeah, I think your point about it is for the fan base. Like, I'm a men's season ticket holder. I have tickets at Excel because, yeah, it's way easier for me to, like, walk down the street from my office in Harvard <laughs> to, than to drive to stores at night during the week. Right. But without fans, yeah, what's the point? 
Right. It's funny because the last few years, it was always, all right, let's, it's so much easier for me to get to games at Gamble as a student at UConn as compared to the three years, three and a half years, I didn't have a car. Getting to XL is way more difficult. Whereas now I'm back home, I live in Glastonbury and it's so much easier to get to XL now and everything's going to be at Gamble. Not that I don't mind the drive out to UConn at all, but I saw a lot of people when the news was announced kind of celebrating that there's not going to be games at XL. XL is a pretty solid place to watch a game and it serves a pretty big purpose as we've mentioned with easier to access for the fan base. So I don't think it would be a good thing for UConn to stop playing games completely at XL. And yeah, the atmosphere at Gamble is much better, but if you look at like the Tennessee game last year, or even the Baylor game, when XL gets loud, it is really, really loud in there. And it's a different vibe than Gamble, but I really think XL gets a way worse rep than it should. I definitely agree with that. I actually kind of, well, I like the environment at Gamble, but in terms of like going to games for a fan experience, I think Excel is more fun, especially because because you're in Hartford, there's other things to do. Like you can go out to dinner. Like when you go to UConn, there's, I'm, it's the same place as you ate as like a student. There's not a lot of options <laughs> to get food. <laughs> I was going right, to say, so, don't you dare hate on Ted's wings. I mean, I, I love some Ted's wings every once in a while, but if you want like a good meal, like Hartford just has so many more options. There's other right. things to do. I, yeah. Also, from like a fan perspective, right? You can you can drink at Excel Center. You can't drink at Gamble. That is probably a big factor for people. It's an extremely underrated thing that not enough people talk about. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, like it's a very important thing. I feel like for a sporting event venue, right? Like, <laughs> it's not the greatest, but hopefully we'll see games return to Excel. I think it would be nice if the percentage got dropped a little bit. If it was more of a two-thirds split with Gamble and Excel, or even three fourths Gamble and XL, whereas it's pretty much right down the middle now. I don't, I don't think you need to have exhibition games at XL. I don't think you need the lower rated Big East now games there. But I think it makes sense to pretty much split it so that you have half the big games at each venue and then stack most of the other XL games over winter break when the students aren't going to be there. Because when the students aren't there, Gamble can be really, really quiet. So I think Excel is better for that. But yeah, I, I think just lowering that percentage is way more ideal than actually full out pulling away from Excel completely. I agree. I think if you pull out from Excel completely, you're going to upset a lot of the fan base too, just because for most people, like if you're working in the Hartford area, like to drive up to stores in the middle of the week at night, is it's a hike. Like it's not an easy thing to yeah. do after work. So I agree. Uh, Speaking of home arenas, more or less for UConn, Final Four has got announced for future sites. So in 2025, the Final Four is going to be in Tampa, which it seems like it's there every other year. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. And then 2026 is going to be in Phoenix, which is pretty exciting. Leading up to that, to backtrack a little bit, 2021 is going to be in San Antonio. 2022 is going to be in Minneapolis. Pretty cool that Paige Beckers can win a national championship in her backyard. 2023 is going to be in Dallas and then 2024 is going to be in Cleveland, which is interesting. Cleveland's not as bad as people say it is. Still don't think I would be able to get super jazzed up for a trip there. I've actually so, heard like decent things about Cleveland. I feel like I've never been there, though. I don't really know. <laughs> I've been once for like a day to go to Progressive Field and I was pleasantly surprised by it. It's definitely not going to bring the same excitement factor as like New Orleans. But I, then again, can any place? Probably not. 
Yeah, I feel like there's a few places on that list. Maybe like Nashville or something is kind of fun. But yeah, New Orleans was really high up there. Really am not super thrilled that Tampa keeps getting Final Fours. They also have one of the Frozen Fours coming up. I really didn't think Tampa was anything special when we were there. Well, it was 2019 Final Four. Like the in Florida is the redeeming quality about it. Yeah, exactly. I feel like the only redeeming thing about Tampa was that you could like get in a car and be at the beach in like 20 minutes but I yeah I was very underwhelmed by the city I feel like people knock on Hartford all the time and there were way more like places to eat or go after a game or like restaurants to like hang out at in Hartford than there were in Tampa like you go to that arena and you come out of a game and it's just like parking lots there's no place to go and that's I feel like not the type of arena environment you want what I didn't realize about Tampa before going there is if you talk about Tampa Bay, that includes the city of Tampa, but then also St. Petersburg and Clearwater across the bay, that bay is gigantic. Like, it's not just like it's these three cities that are close to each other, that it's like a 10-minute car ride. It's like a half-hour car ride in between each of them. So I thought St. Petersburg, I went there for one night. I thought that was pretty fun. But if you're staying in St. Petersburg, you're close to like an hour away from the arena. So it's not really that feasible. So... I don't understand why Tampa keeps getting these final fours, but it's kind of annoying. I don't really know much about a lot of the cities. I've heard that uh, San Antonio can be fun. Minneapolis can be an underrated place. Dallas, I've heard, is nothing super special. <laughs> As someone that's you go spent to... a fair amount of time in Dallas for work, yeah, it's nothing special. <laughs> did you go to the final four there in 2017? I did not, no. The only, I, like, redeeming thing about Dallas is, like, there is a lot of good food, but it's a very spread out city. I don't know. Uh, see, I don't like that. Yeah. As someone who, when they travel, relies a lot on using Uber, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And at least it's Texas, so Uber's kind of cheap, but. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. I think Minneapolis could be quietly exciting. I've heard solid things. Hopefully it's not freezing cold there in April. I don't think it's going to be warm, but. Like they had the Super Bowl there a few years ago, and I think it was like negative 20 every day. So as long as it's not that, I think it's pretty doable. Yeah, Minneapolis is someplace I've I've never been, but I've heard really good things about like for going in the summer. April is iffy, but I knew, do you know they have like in all the buildings downtown, they've got like these like enclosed skyways that connect everything. So you can get real without having to walk outside if it actually is freezing, which is kind of nice. I feel like that's a cool experience just in and of itself. Like walking throughout an entire city and not even going outside like where else can you do that yeah probably nowhere <laughs> also i feel like it kind of went unmentioned but uconn's absolutely going to be at every single one of these final fours like there's oh, no yeah. chance they don't make one of, like 2025 and 2026 okay we'll reevaluate in a few years but Paige beckers is making four final fours i don't know how many national championships she's winning out of that but she's making every single final four there agreed I feel like this year's one is kind of exciting too. San Antonio, I've heard great things about. Who knows if we'll actually get to go, but. <laughs> right. That's the killer thing. Two really good final four cities, New Orleans. And not that I really don't think I was going to be going to New Orleans because I don't think UConn was making it, but you get two really good final four cities back to back and really solid chance the pandemic knocks out both of them. So it seems fitting. Phoenix will be awesome though. That's a great one. Only six years away. <laughs> I'm not going to think about how old I'll be by then. Well, at <laughs> least the need... pandemic should be over by then. <laughs> Fingers crossed. If it's not, I, 
uh, I don't want to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) So staying on the topic of the NCAA tournament, the NCAA also announced that in 2023, the regionals are going to be changing. So the regionals are the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. Previously, they're held at four different locations, and it's pretty much close to a guarantee that almost every single year, at least like eight out of 10 years, the regionals is going to be somewhere nearby for UConn to play at. A lot of times it basically bounces back between Bridgeport and Albany. It was in Kingston, Rhode Island a couple of years ago. Even in like the early 2010s, it was in Philadelphia, which isn't too far. It's drivable. Now it's going to be switching to two regionals per year and only one of those years is going to have a location close to UConn. It's Albany, unfortunately. Speaking of terrible cities, Albany, New York. Oh my God. There's nothing to do in that city. Literally <laughs> nothing. But uh, back on topic briefly. Yeah, there's only two host cities. So I feel like that's a very, not a huge knock because UConn can still make Final Fours without it. And I think they still would have made most if not all the past few final fours they weren't playing with a home crowd but it's a tough break for UConn yeah I kind of thought it was interesting that when, when they switched to the two format which we can talk about more but that they only had the one in Albany that's kind of near UConn I feel like when you watch regional games on television UConn when there's a like a basically home game for UConn it's the only one that has like a full stadium they don't sell out the other ones even Notre Dame was like in the regional in Chicago I think it was yeah, 2019, the crowd was, like, not full at all. And that's, like, their backyard, basically, drivable for them. So, yeah, I, it was surprising to me just because, like, the NCAA's goal is to make money. So if you want to sell tickets. <laughs> right. And they also just kind of picked some bizarre cities. Like, so, okay, let me read off the future cities. 2023 is going to be Greenville, South Carolina. Don't know much about it. And then Seattle, which Seattle's a pretty good city, so I can't complain with that. Plus, I think it is fair to give a little more attention to the West Coast because they have so many good teams out there, and um, that's an easy one for them to travel to. 2024 is going to be Albany and then Portland, Oregon. Portland, also a really good city. Pacific Northwest, very great place. 2025, here's where it starts to get interesting. Birmingham, Alabama, and Spokane, Washington. Like, why on both of those? <laughs> right. <Why? laughs> what teams are even remotely near both of them? Yeah. Like, Mississippi State for Alabama, I guess. It, yeah. I don't even know if that's close. It's just, like, it's not a destination that people want to go to. Like, you're trying to sell tickets. One, like, put it close to teams that have a fan base that travels. Two, pick places that people actually want to go. No one wants to go to Birmingham, Alabama. Right. And Spokane, Washington is as much of a middle of nowhere city as you can get. Like it is basically on the easternmost border of Washington, nowhere (laughs) remotely close to Seattle. I think Eastern Washington's out there, but again, nobody. Why? It's, it's bizarre. Those, that that was the weirdest one by far. And then 2026 going to be Fort Worth, Texas and Sacramento. Fort Worth is basically like an extension of Dallas, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's also and, eh. <laughs> and then Sacramento, I I don't know a whole lot about, so I I've can't been, really it's speak also to underwhelming. The I feel like the best part about Sacramento is that you're like I think an hour and a half from San Fran and like an hour from Napa <laughs> Valley. That's it's pretty much only redeeming qualities. <laughs> yeah, Sacramento is Stanford, but that's pretty much it. Like 
I understand wanting to kind of spread out and I, I think it, a lot of it has to do that teams were probably complaining that UConn gets a lot of home games in the NCAA tournament because clearly UConn has been the best team in college basketball for the past 25 years because they have two games kind of close to their campus <laughs> in the NCAA tournament. That's the reason. It does kind of feel like the NCAA made a bit of an effort to keep games away from any teams. But like you said, I can't imagine there's going to be a whole lot of people dying to go to Birmingham, Alabama or Spokane, Washington for those regionals. It's just the whole point of having these regionals near some of the best teams is that you're going to get their fan bases to go that you're not going to sell tickets to random sites. Like, look, this isn't the men's NCAA tournament. It's hard to sell out games that aren't near fan bases. So it's just, I thought it was really bizarre. I don't understand the switch to two to two locations either. That I, I didn't see an explanation for it, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, that one, I don't know. I feel, I have mixed feelings on the two locations, but I totally agree on the, like, why, where I pick these places. Like, even someone that's, like, a diehard UConn fan, they're going to be like, well, if do I really want to get on a flight to Birmingham, Alabama? Probably no. They're just going to not go and wait till the Final Four. <laughs> like... <laughs> it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all but the two locations I can kind of go both ways on it I think in one well selfishly as like someone that goes for media and covers multiple teams like it's fun to go and like be able to watch not just one set of games but two sets of games and I can see it from a logistic I have wonder if it had to just a lot to do with like ESPN like logic like they can get like their best teams and the two sites and just like be able to do their coverage better um yeah okay so i googled on TripAdvisor things to do in birmingham alabama (laughs) here's what we have birmingham civil rights tour in fairness that actually does sound pretty cool yeah as a history nerd birmingham ghost walk hotels churches and riots tours it seems like it could be interesting it has four and a half stars on nine reviews brewery tasting tour of birmingham okay uh, Birmingham scavenger hunt. I don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, here's a good one. It's historical highlights of Birmingham. And the photo is a rusted out factory. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh, top attractions. Here we go. Barber vintage motorsports museum. So a motorcycle museum. Interesting. Birmingham civil rights Institute. Vulcan park and museum. I don't know what that is. McWayne sign. Okay. If you have a science center as number four on your <laughs> attractions list, that means you don't have a whole lot going on for you. Yeah. I guess you can't knock it till you're there. Cause I feel like people would probably say the thing, like the final four was in Indianapolis a few years ago. And that's like a very underrated city in my opinion. Like people are probably like, why Indianapolis? But yeah, I don't know. I feel like when you have to like look for things to do, it's just not like an attractive destination for people to go. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I guess this doesn't have, like, food places, but I have heard good things about Indianapolis, yeah. I don't know. I would love to just hear the thought process about why Birmingham, Alabama, and Spokane, Washington. What's Wait, is that also the Cleveland Final Four year? It, it is. Oh, wow, God. that is a... It's a poor Oh, no, it's not. It's not. I'm oh, okay. Sad. So, 2024 is Albany and Portland. 2025 is Tampa, though, which is actually kind of fitting. Yeah, also... 
horrible city. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like also with like the final four, like yeah, it sucks if it's not in a great place, but like the final four is like an event that people plan to go to, and it is like a destination in itself. Like a regionals right. is not a destination in itself. It's three basketball games that you're going to. Well, I guess now six basketball games, but like it's just a small set of basketball games like you have a lot of downtown like the final four like yeah they do so much stuff like there's even if there was nothing to do in the city you'll find things to do but yeah I don't know but for regionals it just if you're trying to sell tickets it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because basically you're only going to sell tickets to the school that can drive there and what happens when the school <laughs> that like can drive there does, isn't in the final or in that regional or like can't play or doesn't make it or whatever like I don't know yeah, it's just, and to wrap it up, it's just bizarre, and I don't understand it. We're going to go into one last ad break and be right back. Okay, so we're back with some pretty exciting recruiting news. Easy FUD has been pretty much radio silence her entire recruiting process. We found out in the course of pretty much a week She's probably going to make her college decision by the November signing date. And according to SI, she's down to UConn and UCLA. Thoughts, Megan? It's an interesting last two. I'll definitely give it that. I mean, I think we all expected that, like, if she put out a last whatever list, it, UConn was going to be on it. UCLA was a surprise to me. I, like, that's not right on the top of, like, teams that you're expecting to see. She's not from, like, L.A. area or Southern California or anything. Um, so surprising. I think it's interesting. I kind of feel like I'll be surprised if she ends up at UCLA, but it would be huge for their program because they're, I feel like, a program that's been kind of consistently good. They've sent a couple players to the WNBA. Picking up a recruit, like, easy fun for them would be, like, a program changing type move obviously getting her at UConn is awesome for UConn it's not program changing great because UConn's just not in that kind of <laughs> space where any recruit can be program changing anymore um I mean if UConn gets AZ FUD like do they lose a game with her and Paige on the same team for three years like it's gonna be um, they might not yeah I would probably bet no on that but I wouldn't count on it because that juggernaut Stewie team in 2015 lost a game. So really anything's possible after that. But yeah, I don't know if it's a better sign for UConn that they're with UCLA, who in theory they should easily beat out for a top recruit. Or if it's concerning that UCLA has stayed on this long, despite not seeming like an obvious choice. Like if it was UConn in South Carolina or UConn in Notre Dame, one of those perennial contenders. I don't know. I, I feel like, the fact that it's UCLA is a little bizarre, but at the same time, when Gino wants players, it seems like he gets them. One of the few exceptions was Aaliyah Boston a couple of years ago. It seemed like he was a little surprised that she picked South Carolina, but even then South Carolina had already won a national championship. South Carolina was proving itself to be a perennial contender, despite my own thoughts. <laughs> UCLA is always, as you mentioned, kind of, a elite eight ceiling team they're usually fighting for the ncaa tournament can usually get into the second weekend but never really contended for a national title i don't think they've ever even been to a final four so it is weird i just wonder if maybe az wants to do her own thing and kind of do what sabrina did to 
Oregon and be the start of a program at UCLA. I don't know. I, I was very surprised to see UCLA in there and I, I really don't know how to read it. If it's good for UConn, bad for UConn or really what? Yeah. I don't know how to read it either. Cause it's just two very, very different options really is what it comes down to. Like it's UConn versus a school that she'll be like the person that changes their program. So two very different things. Yeah. If she goes there, it's very much a similar, I feel like Sabrina track where yeah, she's going to be kind of the face of the program, what brings them to that elite level. I guess in terms of like what she ultimately ends up choosing, I feel like if you're like want her to be at UConn, it stings a lot less to lose her to like a UCLA than like a South Carolina or Notre Dame or something like that. Right. Because UCLA offers something that UConn can't. Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't think you could say the same thing about you or South Carolina, Notre Dame, Baylor, those schools means you basically just got beat out for the player. So yeah, if she picks UCLA, it's, I imagine it has to do with it's just UConn can't offer her the same thing. UConn's going to be loaded with talent the next few years. So she's obviously probably going to be good enough to earn minutes. But if she goes to UCLA, she's going to start every single game her career. She's going to be the team's go-to player pretty much from the get-go. And I don't know. I It probably just comes down to personal success versus team success. Does she want to have a, as great of a – personal career as she can have I don't know if that can be the case at UConn because she'll have so much other talent around her and she'll probably only need to play like 25 minutes a game to win games by 50 whereas UCLA she's going to be the go-to player so I think it's just going to be really interesting to watch and I mostly just hope that we have some heads up for when she's going to commit so that it doesn't just drop on like a Tuesday afternoon and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah, because there's really just been no information. I think she has now said that she's going to do it before like the November signing period, but that's still like a month window at this point. So yeah, it's, I feel like my favorite is when the like, recruits like drop it on like Twitter randomly, like Friday night. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh my God, the Avina Westbrook special <laughs> story behind that. I think it was the weekend before finals and my some of my friends who are graduating this is my junior year uh we're going out to huskies so i decided to go out. i very rarely go out and i'm standing in the middle of the dance floor at huskies when i see that <laughs> avina westbrook is committed to uconn and then i'm pretty sure who's the big in 2021 amary deberry she committed like the day of uconn men's basketball season opener so i was in the student section like sitting when that came through. So really hope that recruits can start to time these things better when I'm actually working. That would make my life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, definitely not Friday night when no one is home to write. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So some other news from the NCAA, the division one council reportedly approved a measure to give all winter athletes an extra year of eligibility. So it's not dramatically surprising because they did the same thing for fall athletes, but it means that regardless of if teams play a season, a full season, half a season, no season, basically in the eyes of the NCAA, the season isn't going to count for eligibility, which I'm not totally sure how to feel about it. What about you, Megan? I feel like it just doesn't make any sense to me because you look at like they could play a full season right like have a final four everything like everything goes and then they get another year of eligibility but then you look at like 
winter athletes last year that didn't get to play in any of the championships and they were like no you absolutely can't have another year of eligibility of like right it just doesn't make any sense right because that's they're playing for that championship that's what everyone's playing for all season well the teams that'll make it there but I mean everyone has their conference tournaments everything like that's what you're playing towards so they get like robbed of that experience and they're like no no eligibility but now it's like we don't even know what's going to happen everything could go on as totally planned but here's another extra year of eligibility right I agree I think it's really weird that they didn't give the winter athletes an extra year after missing the postseason last year because I don't understand what the difference is. It's really not that hard, in my opinion, to just see, we'll see how it plays out by the end of the season. Because why does someone who plays an entire, like let's use the fall as an example with UConn. UConn football is not playing football. So yes, it makes sense that every single one of those athletes gets an extra year because they're not playing. But if you look at, some power five school. I'm, I'm, I don't follow college football close enough to know an exact team, but let's just say Alabama, Alabama plays a full 12 game schedule, ends up in the national championship game and wins. Why do they get an extra year of eligibility? It, it really doesn't make sense to me. And it kind of makes me feel like the NCAA is almost acknowledging that this year doesn't actually count. It's not a real year. That's, that's the biggest takeaway. I, I can make from this is that when you make a decision like that, I feel like you're just saying this year we're going to let you play, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I still find it weird. It's, I feel like if you're going to play, then you played and that's it. I don't like, they have so many arbitrary rules about like everything else for them to just be like, Oh yeah. Everyone gets more eligibility now. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Gino also had some similar comments on it. So what, all the guys that are in, playing college basketball this year, if they want, can stay another year? Yeah, similar to fall sports and, and spring sports for that matter. Even if we play a whole season? Yeah. Does that make any sense? That's, that's a fair question. <laughs> so you get to play a whole year, play 26 games, 27 games, whatever, and then you get another year next year. Yeah. Whether they play or not, they get the extra year of eligibility. <laughs> I think you're going to have a lot of coaches that are going to have a problem with that. To be honest with you. I mean, I don't have to worry. I don't have any, I don't have any seniors. But I think you're going to have a lot of coaches that are going to go. You put me in a tough spot here because now you're going to have some, some seniors go, hey, I want to stay. And you got a coach going like, I wasn't planning on you staying. <laughs> and now you, what are you going to do? Turn the kid out? I don't like it. If you lose your season, I can see that. If you say, hey, look, the fall sports guys, you lost your season. We'll give that back to you. I can see that. I can see that. That makes, that makes sense. How are you going to let somebody play a whole season and then give them another year? You know? You should have let Avina play last year. That would have made more sense. <laughs> See, they go from they go from arbitrarily telling people no to now just making up reasons to say yes. <laughs> I, hey, what do I know? I, it, it's funny. I was just thinking about that today about you know how much a scholarship is now in some schools. You know, it's like seventy five thousand dollars at some schools. So. 
all those, all those, all those kids that are getting next year, they got to come back to schools on the hook for that. And with the new kids coming in, what are you going to tell them? We don't have any room for you. Are they going to expand the rosters? Like this, this is going to cause a lot of consternation in a lot of circles. Yeah, I think he actually found out about the rule on the call. So he was reacting to it live. Yeah, I think we've said it enough, but it just doesn't make sense. I imagine the same thing's going to come through for spring athletes. But in terms of UConn, I honestly don't know how much it's going to affect the program. So if we kind of go class by class, Kristen Williams and Olivia Nelson Adota aren't going to be staying for a fifth year. Both of them are probably going to be top five, if not top 10 draft picks in the WNBA. They're not going to be taking an extra year to play at UConn. That's just not going to happen. I don't really know if we can say anything about Avina to this point, but she is eligible to leave UConn after this year. So if she's a good player and is going to be projected to the first round, as I've said before, she should go. Going to the sophomores, it's kind of early to tell, but I do feel like both of them are going to end up being first-round picks. So if that option's there for them at the end of their senior year, or even I think Anna can go after her junior year, I don't see why they would stay for five. The freshmen, it's way too early to tell with them, but even still, two of those players at least probably get drafted in the first round, at least Paige, so... I don't really know how much this is going to affect UConn long-term. I think it is going to make a mess of a lot of other programs, rosters, especially outside of basketball and where they're more reliant on producing consistent talent that maybe isn't WNBA type talent. But ultimately I think it just creates a mess for coaches to deal with. Yeah, exactly. You've kind of got like, they are obviously, you know, they're recruiting for like 2022 right now, right? You're planning so far out. And then all of a sudden someone says they want to stay like that messes with your whole like roster, who, what your game plan was going into those years in terms of like depth, that different position. It's yeah. It's a nightmare for coaches to deal with. And it's just, if it like made sense, right? Like if like the season wasn't going to happen or like was going to be shortened or whatever, I could see it, but it was like, at this point, I just don't understand. Also, obviously a much smaller thing in the context of a pandemic, but what do you do with the record books? You can't give a player who played five full mm-hmm. seasons the NCAA record for points that Kelsey Plum earned in four years or triple doubles or three-pointers or even program records. Like, It's not fair to award those players their that title when they played an entire extra year. So I don't know how schools and the NCAA is going to handle that if their fifth year doesn't count or this year doesn't count. Again, if this year doesn't count, then why are we even playing games? If, if it doesn't really mean anything, then basically you're acknowledging that this is all just one long exhibition schedule. So I don't know. It's just, it's all so bizarre. So on our last podcast, we made some WNBA finals predictions and basically said that the storm were just going to blow through the Las Vegas aces to win the WNBA title. And lo and behold, that is exactly what happened. Shocker there. <laughs> yeah, no shocker there really, but I think you can talk definitely about what Brianna Stewart and Super did. I mean, Super at first like was just absolutely incredible in that final series it broke like the playoff assist record and first game had a 10 assist double double in the second game. Just, really insane like kind of fourth championship for her right and four championships 
spread across three different decades, actually four different decades, because this is a new decade, which is just amazing. And I remember there's a story, I forget from who a few years ago, but right before that 2018 championship kind of before they drafted Brianna Stewart Subert had the chance to go somewhere else to finish her career somewhere outside Seattle where she probably would have been on a contender much quicker she very easily probably could have won a ring wherever those options were and she decided to stay in Seattle and help them build their next championship team and I think it's pretty fair to say that these last two storm championships probably don't happen without her and I think it's just a really cool story that she was able to continue her legacy in Seattle and that she's probably going to retire as a career long member of the storm with those four titles. And I, I don't know. I just, I, I just love that story that she decided to stay. Agreed. I think it's a great story. And like you said, we'll probably retire there. I guess you can only say probably because she is a free agent this year. So technically she could leave, but uh, I mean, I would be surprised if that happens. Um, so yeah a really awesome story obviously like I think first player to like win the championships across that many decades I think she's also in the same like year season as LeBron and I think they had the same amount of championships so that's kind of cool a lot of really cool stats around it but this is super impressive obviously from her I just want to disagree with that LeBron stat though Subert has six championships let's not forget those UConn titles so that's fair. <laughs> So she's ahead of LeBron in that regard. She should really get credit for those because obviously she was a huge piece of them. Wait, did she win two? Yeah, yeah, 2000. Yeah, she won two. Yeah. yeah, I always forget about that 2000 championship team. Um, but yeah, and then Brianna Stewart, I mean, yeah, she didn't win MVP, but she's the best player in the WNBA. I think she proved that pretty easily. The yeah. year she comes off of her Achilles injury. Yep, and still wins finals MVP, obviously. I mean, if like she was, I don't know if she was pissed about how the final or the MVP voting came out where like Asia, I mean, basically swept it. There was only like three first place votes for Stewie, which made no sense to me. But anyway, um, like she made a statement about that in that first game. She went off, I think it was like 35 points and 15, 16 rebounds. Just absolutely like dominant performance from her. Was great off three games long but I think my favorite moment from her from that series was her on the media availability and her like champagne goggles (laughs) that photo is just gold (laughs) the post Dewey celebration photos every single one of them was absolutely incredible we have them on the Yukon blog in our appreciating Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart post just talk about someone who's just so happy to be alive Brianna Stewart celebrates like no one else yeah, literally, like, maybe two hours later, I ordered some ski goggles on Amazon. It's like, I'm being Stewie for Halloween. <laughs> costume. Oh, my God. That's great. Wow. I wish I could pull that off. I still need a Halloween costume. But I went back and did some research. So counting her time at UConn, Brianna Stewart is 47-5 and five in the postseason. So the NCAA tournament, Big East slash AAC tournament, and WNBA playoffs five losses so just twice she has not come away at the end of the season with a championship whether it be WNBA or college and those two seasons were her first two in the WNBA so yeah absolutely insane I mean (laughs) both times that she's been in the WNBA finals they swept the other team it was 3-0 3-0 against the Mystics in 2018 it was 3-0 against the Aces this year and 
both times too it's worth any just like dominant performances too like you had no doubt that they were probably just gonna sweep them hasn't super had only lost like one finals game in her career i feel like she said one or she might have said actually none i can't remember exactly what she said but yeah um <laughs> it's just like <laughs> you can only laugh because it's so unbelievable that right. like these two players were so good in college and just somehow they're infinitely better in the pros they're like i really don't know how brianna stewart doesn't finish her career with like eight championships i don't think we've ever seen a force as dominant as she is yeah like i mean obviously like she's got some time before she gets like the like greatest of all time status but no doubt in my mind that she's gonna be the greatest basketball player that we've we'll probably see i feel like in our lifetime i mean because you never know who's gonna come up next but she's just so good I saw someone posing on Twitter. I think it was Howard Megdahl, our friend. If Brianna Stewart retired today with her resume, would she make the Hall of Fame? Like, yes. Like I think it's not even a question. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like she could have retired after college and still made the Hall of Fame. Right. Like, it's basically only the longevity that she doesn't have, but she's won literally every single thing humanly possible. Yeah. Like, yeah college like championship four college championships four most outstanding final four awards like three best player or ncaa like player of the year i could keep listening but yeah wmba mvp two championships final four mvp olympic gold medal fiba championship fema mvp yeah we can keep going but <laughs> yeah everything possible <laughs> it's just like and she's already had a major injury in her career. So hopefully that's like the only one that she has and that she can stay healthy. It's just, I mean, I would hate to be a WNBA executive that's on a team that isn't the Seattle Storm because I just don't know how you can have any hope that you'll ever come away with a title at the end of the season. It's just ridiculous. Also really cool. I think it was their ownership was the first all-female ownership group to win a championship. Which is yeah, I didn't know awesome. that. That that was an awesome, not just stat, but it's awesome that it's an all-women ownership group. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I did too. I don't think you see that often, so definitely cool to see. Hopefully that can grow or become more popular so the WNBA can continue to grow because I think it's really unfortunate that it's such a small league and it's not in so many markets i mean you just could if you had four more teams you have 48 more roster spots to open up for players coming out of college and i think we definitely saw this year with the bubble where a lot of the stars and just a lot of players opted out and a lot of those fringe roster players got their chances and really took advantage of them and proved that they're capable of playing in the WNBA and there's just really not spots for them, which is really, really unfortunate. Yeah, I totally agree with that point. Like, I've, We haven't seen it yet, but I don't think we're at this point, if they keep it at like the current roster size and current team size, like we're not far from seeing first round draft picks not make rosters because there's just not enough spots. And unless you're like an elite prospect, you might not make a team which is crazy to think about, right? That you could have like a first round pick that's not going to make a roster. So I don't know when expansion is in the plan, but it's, I feel like starting to become almost necessary because you're just losing out on so much good talent that has the ability to play in this league. Just, there's not enough spots to do it. Right. And then you also don't give young players that could afford 
or that need maybe two, three, even four years of developing at the end of the bench into better players. They just don't have that opportunity. You need to produce right away or you're not going to be on the roster. And I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but I, I imagine there's plenty of players out there that if they just had more of a shot, they would eventually be able to become pretty productive. Yeah, even look at like on Indiana Fever this year, there's Julie Alamond, who I think is a player from Belgium. I can't remember if she went to the college in the U.S. or not, but she was like technically a rookie this year. It was the first time she made a WNBA team, but she like was drafted in four years ago. So like she needed that time and there just wasn't enough roster space to develop her on the WNBA team. So she did it abroad. But yeah, I'm sure there's a lot going to be a lot more cases like that with the kind of roster crunch that there is. Yeah. So more of the story, WNBA expand. If you have a lot of money, (laughs) I mean, send it to us first, but then also (laughs) start a WNBA team because just, I think it's really important to grow the sport across the country, especially as you start having these newer programs in college basketball, the Oregon's, the South Carolina's, pop up around the country where basketball is getting big for them louisville and they do really well with their attendance but it only lasts for the college season so i think there's a lot of women's basketball fans out there that don't have a team like from my perspective at least on twitter it seems like there's a ton of people who are wnba fans but don't necessarily have an allegiance to one team aside from maybe the players on that team just because there are so few teams that they're so spread out across the country. There's not a whole lot of people in areas that they can feel attached to a team. Like someone in Boston, Connecticut is a completely different world. So I don't know if you'd be a Connecticut Sun fan. So it's just, I think you're also missing out, not just with the roster spots, but missing out on future fans. Definitely. Yeah. And I feel like it would be really cool to see like something like what just happened in the NWSL with the expansion in LA where it was just kind of like a bunch of ex-players and uh, like celebrities and stuff that were all kind of female ownership just banded together, made a team. Like that would be awesome to kind of see the WNBA expand that way. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think that team was anchored by actress Natalie Portman. Mm -hmm. So like just having even just having some big wig celebrity, maybe even if they're not a majority owner of the team as the face of a franchise, I think would help draw a lot of people in. Yep. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of chasing perfection. You can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Gower. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel V Connolly. subscribe to the Yukon women's basketball weekly, read the Yukon blog and store central, make sure to vote, make sure to wear a mask, Megan, anything else? Uh, This comes out tomorrow, so happy 40 days till the NCAA season. Basketball's coming back. That'll do it.